Section 3 of Early Rome by Wilhelm Ina. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 2. Sources of the History of Rome, Part 1. We propose in the present volume to trace the history of Rome through its earliest stages, from the foundation of the city to its destruction by the Gauls, or in the language of the old annalists, from Romulus, its first founder, to its second founder, Camillus. We shall have to review a period of nominally three centuries and a half, a period as long as that which separates us from the Protestant Reformation, from Luther and Charles V and Henry VIII. It is the period in which those institutions were formed which proved the strength of the strongest republic of all ages. It is therefore a period replete with interest for those students of history who desire to penetrate, as it were, into the workshop of the national mind and to watch its operations. And yet we can hardly speak of a history of this time, except in so far as we attach to the word history the original meaning which it bore in the Greek language and which is synonymous with investigation. History in its modern sense not only endeavors to ascertain events accurately, but also to show how each successive event was the product of what preceded and the cause of what followed. Such a concatenation of cause and effect is possible only where the facts can be ascertained not only with certainty, but also with circumstantiality. Where these conditions do not exist, inquiry may still be carried on with profit and with pleasure. Truth may be elicited and errors laid bare, but the full delight and the satisfaction produced by genuine history are wanting. The introductory chapters in the history of every country necessarily consist of such investigations. They are the dawn preceding the day. They contain truth mixed with fables in ever-varying proportions. They are often more perplexing and irritating than instructive and pleasing, and yet we must make our way through them, for as every succeeding event can only be understood if we know that which preceded and prepared it, we are impelled to ascend the stream of history as high as we can, even if the source itself should be hidden and inaccessible. The ancient historians, and the modern ones too, until quite recently, were not disturbed by any doubts concerning the truth of the early chapters of the history of Rome. They related with implicit and childlike faith the foundation of the city, which took place, they say, on the 21st of April, in a year calculated as identical with the second year of the seventh Olympiad, or 754 years before the Christian era. They related the wars of Romulus, the legislation of Numa, the conquests of Tullus, and, in short, the deeds of all the kings with the same air of faith with which they described events reported by eyewitnesses. It is true they were occasionally puzzled by contradictions in the narrative, or startled by some downright incredible statement. They were consequently forced to abandon as mere ornaments the reported miracles, but they never doubted that what remained of this narrative was substantially true. This simple faith was the delight of Cicero and Livy, of Dionysius and Plutarch, and of all the following ages down almost to our own. Neither the cautious and sober-minded Bacon nor the learned Milton doubted the truth of a story hallowed by the implicit faith of so many ages. 
and yet the revival of learning in the fifteenth century had hardly taken place before some acute and bold inquirers began in a modest and tentative way to point out errors and improbabilities in some of the received accounts. Yet a few isolated glimpses of light left the general darkness unbroken. Even the more comprehensive view of the unhistoric character of the early history of Rome, which was taken by the Italian philosopher G. Vico, died 1744, produced no effect upon the general convictions of historians. Vico's remarks were still unheeded when two Frenchmen, Pouilly in 1729 and Beaufort in 1738, published treatises on the uncertainty of the first five centuries of Roman history, in which for the first time a series of doubts was not only expressed, but supported by sound arguments. Yet even Pouilly and Beaufort seem to have found no followers. Neither the philosophic jurist Montesquieu, who died in 1755, nor the skeptic historians Hume, who died in 1776, and Gibbon, who died in 1794, seem to have been shaken in their faith. At last, in 1811, B. G. Niebuhr published the first volume of a learned and searching criticism into the history of Rome, in which he showed how utterly untenable the stories are which had so long passed unchallenged as the history of the Roman kings and of the first ages of the Republic. Niebuhr's book was written at the right time. The minds of the literary world were prepared to receive the truth, and from that moment to the present, the critical, that is, the rational study of Roman history has gained ground more and more, every year has added contributions to our knowledge of Roman institutions, laws, government, antiquities, and the languages of ancient Italy. The same method of critical investigation has since been applied to the histories of Greece and other nations, and though Niebuhr's views have in many respects been modified and rejected, the anti-Niebuhrian mode of treating history, and especially the history of Rome, has been abandoned by the unanimous consent of modern historians. When Niebuhr's book first appeared, it caused amazement and not a little regret that such a number of stories endeared like household words to our earliest recollections should be rejected as useless and idle fancies. This feeling, however, which in sterner minds assumed even the character of indignation and stubborn conservatism, has almost subsided. The critical method has so far gained ground that on the whole Niebuhr is more blamed for retaining too much of the old faith than for overturning so many vain idols. The most advanced in this line of criticism is Sir George Cornwall Lewis, who in his able and comprehensive book On the Credibility of Early Roman History, published in 1855, discussed the question in all its bearings and came to the conclusion that a genuine and trustworthy history of Rome does not begin before the war with Pyrrhus, that is to say, the second half of the fifth century after the foundation of the city. In this conclusion, Sir G. C. Lewis seems to have gone too far. It is, of course, difficult to draw the exact line which divides darkness from light and error from truth, when one passes into the other by imperceptible gradations. Wherever we may draw the line, some truth will always be found to be mixed up with error, and some error to contain particles of truth, and in proportion as men are severe or lax in their canons of criticism, 
they will be inclined to limit or extend the legitimate domain of history. After all, sufficient data remain for sketching the outline of historical events from the beginning of the Republic, and to form a conception of the condition of the Roman people even in the age of the kings. The first question we have to answer, if we would judge of the credibility of a statement claiming to be considered historical, is not whether it is probable or likely, for the fictions of a novel or a poem may be extremely likely without having the least pretense to veracity. We must ask, what is the evidence upon which the statement rests? Were the witnesses able, and were they willing, to tell the truth? All historical narratives must be derived from contemporary evidence, from persons who have heard or seen what they report, and who do not purposely corrupt, distort, or altogether falsify the facts. Inaccuracy, incompleteness, faulty apprehension, we must expect and excuse even in the best of witnesses, for experience shows that facts as they pass through the observing and reasoning mind of witnesses inevitably assume that particular form and color which the individuality of these witnesses gives to them. We may even expect contradictions as to detail, degree, and manner. In partial and passionate witnesses, we may look for involuntary or even voluntary misrepresentations. All such divergencies in the statements of eyewitnesses it is the duty of the historian to weigh against each other, and from their combination to work out the truth. This task becomes more difficult and the result more precarious if we obtain our evidence not from eyewitnesses but at second hand from persons who report not what they have seen and heard but what has been related to them by others. All the causes which tend to distort truth are now doubled or more than doubled. To the errors, willful or involuntary, of the original witnesses are added those of the secondary witnesses, and the errors increase in number and magnitude the further our witnesses are removed in time and place from the original actors of the events which they relate. It is indeed possible that even when accounts have been thus transmitted through a line of successive reporters, they may still in the main bear some resemblance, nay, that they may give the substance or the main features of the original facts. In such a case we have before us a genuine tradition, which is available for many purposes of historical study, and which constitutes the chief portion of all true historical knowledge possessed by any people before history begins to be cultivated as a branch of literature. But it is evident that very little trust can be placed in the detail of such traditions, and that perfect accuracy, even in the essential parts, can hardly be expected. Let us now see what degree of confidence the history of the regal period of Rome may claim on the score of external evidence. More than five hundred years had passed since the alleged foundation of Rome in 754, before the first rude and feeble attempts were made by a Roman to write a continuous history of the people from the earliest ages. Fabius Pictor, a member of one of the noblest families, himself actively engaged in the military and civil service of the state during the war with Hannibal, wrote a history of his time and prefixed to it, by way of introduction, a short narrative of the whole preceding period. A similar work was undertaken by Lucius Cincius Alimentus, a contemporary of Fabius Pictor. Both these authors wrote not in Latin, 
but in Greek, evidently because the Latin language in their time seemed not sufficiently cultivated for literary composition, and because they had before their eyes as models the great historians of Greece. The first who applied the Latin language to historical composition was Marcus Porcius Cato, the famous censor who, as a young man, had served in the war with Hannibal and died shortly before the final destruction of Carthage in 149 BC, of which he was one of the chief instigators. Cato may be looked upon as the originator of Latin prose writing for literary purposes, and it is curious and instructive to notice that the Romans occupied this field nearly 300 years later than the Greeks. Cato wrote the history of his time, giving a prominent place in it to his own exploits and even to his own speeches, and he, like his predecessors, prefixed several chapters on the history of the earlier ages, including therein accounts of the origin of other Italian cities besides Rome, whence the title of the book Origines was derived. From this time forward, we find a considerable number of Roman writers engaged in the same task. The most prominent among them was Lucius Cassius Hemina, Lucius Calpurnius Piso, Valerius Antius, Quintus Claudius Quadragarius, and Gaius Lucinius Macer, reaching from the time of the Punic Wars to the age of Sulla. Their writings, like those of their predecessors, are lost, but it appears from some notices and extant writers and from a few remaining fragments that the object of these men was more to compose striking and entertaining narratives, and to flatter the national pride of their countrymen than to give plain and faithful accounts of the events. They endeavored to distinguish themselves as writers of the Latin tongue and to rival their Greek models. In this endeavor, it must be admitted, they signally failed. Though they preferred not only rhetorical flourishes to simple style, but also fictitious and ornamental detail to truth gained by patient research, they are looked down upon by Cicero and Tacitus as meager and frigid chroniclers. As their works followed one another, they grew in bulk and pretensions, but not in trustworthiness. Some of them, in the time of civil commotions, were influenced even by party spirit. This class of writers, designated by the common name of analysts, supplied the extant historians, especially Livy and Dionysius, with the materials for their works, and it appears that, unfortunately, Livy followed chiefly the fuller and more elaborate but less truthful accounts of the younger analysts, especially those of Valerius Antius, the least conscientious of them all. Whilst the analysts set themselves the task of simply recording the history of their own or preceding times, we find that contemporaneously with Fabius and Cincius, two poets, Nivius and Aeneas, molded the same materials into epic poems. Nivius, who died in 204 BC, wrote the history of the First Punic War in the old Saturnian verse, the national meter of the Romans, which was soon superseded by the hexameter imported from Greece. Aeneas, a younger contemporary of Nivius, died 169 BC, composed a poem in hexameters on the Second Punic War. Both poets prefixed to the account of their own time the legendary and traditional history of early times from Aeneas downwards. Of these poems, a few scanty fragments are preserved, from which we can gather that their authors adopted in the main the current notions of the early history of Rome, and that they adorned the facts according to the exigencies of their poetical aims. But it seems unlikely 
that they had access to any other sources of information than the analysts, and therefore their works could not have been more authentic and trustworthy as sources of the history of Rome. Nor does it appear that any, either of the analysts or the extant historians, looked upon them or cited them as historical witnesses. In so far as the analysts and analytic poets related the events which happened in their own time or in the age immediately before their own, they may have been trustworthy witnesses. But we may ask what they could possibly know of events preceding their birth by centuries. What, for instance, were the sources from which Fabius Pictor, in the second century before Christ, derived the details of the war with Pyrrhus in the third, or of the wars with the Samnites in the fourth, of the Volscian and Iquian wars in the fifth, and the whole chronicle of the kings in the sixth, seventh, and even eighth centuries before the Christian era. Of one thing we may be quite certain. The analysts did not simply invent the substance of their narrative, certainly not the whole of it. The task would have been too much for the dry, frigid, and unproductive imagination of a Roman. If, on the other hand, a Greek had concocted the account, it would have been far more lively than it is, more interesting and full of startling occurrences, and would shine in all the varied hues of the exuberant fancy with which that brilliant race was endowed. The stories were evidently not invented by Romans, nor could they, such as we know them, have been invented by Greeks. Besides which, on the whole, the divergencies and contradictions which they contain affect only the detail of the narrative. A uniform character and spirit pervade all the legends, making it probable that Fabius and Cincius, as well as Nivius and Aeneas, when they began to write, found a ready-made tradition with fixed popular notions about the principal events of the old period, and moreover, a vast number of names and dates round which the narrative was grouped in a generally accredited digest. How shall we account for the existence of such a popular, unwritten history at the time of the first attempts at historical composition? It was one of Niebuhr's favorite theories that a great portion of the traditional history, embodied in their works by the first analysts, were derived from national epic poetry. Cato and Vero refer to a custom which they say prevailed among their ancestors of singing the praises of great men at festive banquets to an accompaniment of the flute. But we cannot form the slightest conception of the character of these songs. We do not even know whether they were epic or lyric. We are not informed that they were made use of by any of the analysts, and what is a still more decisive objection, the character of the writings of the analysts is eminently dry and unpoetical, with very few exceptions. After all, if Niebuhr's theory were true, it would prove that no reliance could be placed on the alleged poetical stories, for poetry, though it may be based on fact, contains so large an element of fiction, and combines truth and fiction so intimately, that no critical test will enable us to extract from it genuine historical truth. In the absence of epic poems which might explain the preservation of the facts of ancient Roman history, we are thrown back upon ordinary oral tradition. This alone, as we have seen, unaided by some external and artificial mode of recording facts, is sure to degenerate very soon. What, for example, would be our notions at the present day of the revolution of the 17th century if we had to derive our knowledge of it through oral traditions alone? 
but it may be objected we neglect oral tradition because we do not require it in our literary age. There is considerable weight in this objection. The Romans, in the ages before the application of the art of writing to literature, were no doubt compelled to cultivate tradition if they wished to preserve the memory of the past, and we may give them credit for this from what we know of their national pride. Moreover, the constitution of Rome, like that of England, as we have pointed out already, was never subverted entirely by revolutions which swept away the existing institutions and obliterated the memory of the past. All the laws that were in force at any particular time had their roots in previous phases of the commonwealth. Precedents were of much value in deciding questions of the day, and it was necessary for public men to be familiar to a certain extent with the history of previous legislation and the events and conditions which brought it about. This familiarity with the deeds of their forefathers was greatly facilitated in Rome by the fixity of the Roman families, by the composition of the Senate, and by the organization of the priestly bodies. Of the fostering care given to the memory of their ancestors by the great families of Rome, we shall have to speak by and by. The Senate, as we shall see, consisted of men chosen for life. It was never wholly renewed. It never died. It contained all the men who had served the state from their youth upwards in peace and war, who were familiar with the laws and consequently with the history of their people. In their debates, previous events must have been constantly referred to, and though the past naturally slips by degrees into the background of memory, Yet such startling events as the Gallic invasion, or the conquest of Veii, or the succession of the plebeians, or the legislation of the decemvirs, could never be entirely forgotten. End of section 3